This is The Verse, a weekly dive into the cinematic universes and beyond. We'll dissect the latest episodes, films, and news all fans from veterans to news are dying to know more about. Now, here's our team of pop culture superheroes we call The Verse Squad. Welcome to The Verse. Hello, Verselings. Welcome to another special bonus episode. As part of our extended verse, we interviewed Steve Blackman, creator, showrunner, and writer for Netflix's The Umbrella Academy. Steve has an impressive career producing and writing for hit TV shows like Fargo Season 2, Legion, Altered Carbon, Bones, and many more. We had a blast talking with Steve about his approach to writing, his inspiration for deep music cuts, his favorite characters, and so much more. Let's go to the interview. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Been a big fan of yours. The Fargo Season 2 is probably the best season of an incredibly good series. Like um, That one, I think, Thank hit you. me the hardest. Legion is one of my favorite that I try to promote to everybody because I feel like it's it's hasn't been, you know, um, kind of appreciated enough. Uh, but the Umbrella Academy sideswipes me, man. That came out of nowhere. And uh, I, I think I watched the pilot um, and and then just kind of forgot about it. And then uh, my friend w- just would not shut up about it. So I finally went back and went from s- taking my time to watch the pilot to binging like almost the entire season in a week or like multiple seasons in a week. We could love to hear like, that. We yeah. love to hear it. We like to hear when people binge our show. By the way, if you understand Legion, will you explain it to me one day? Even though oh, I wrote it, man, that's say. That's why we have you on the podcast. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, I can explain a few things about it, but it got a little weird uh, as as it was being written. But yeah, no, um, thank you for watching. Um, no, it's uh, you know, Umbrella Academy is written as hopefully a bingeable show. Most people mm-hmm. assume us fairly quickly. You know, our fans watching in a weekend uh, over three or four days, which is what we love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask though, like origin stories, right? So we, and superhero movies, we love origin stories. So what is the origin story for Umbrella Academy and you? Like, where did it all start? Okay. So that's a great question. So um, I'm, I'm not a huge graphic novel fan. I mean, I, I read them, but I did not know about the Umbrella Academy when I first, uh, when this first was brought to me. In fact, I told my agents I wasn't really interested in it when I heard it was a graphic novel with superheroes and they persisted. And when I read it, I realized I saw in it a dysfunctional family show. And in fact, I, I think the log line I used is a dysfunctional family show with a body count was my uh, tagline. <laughs> I'm um, sold. Yeah. And, and what I did was, you know, I, I really felt there was a Wes Anderson story in there somewhere and I don't hide that, you know, a lot of the show pays homage to him. So I got on the phone with Gerard Way, who's the, one of the creators with Gabriel Ba. And he also happens to be the lead singer of My Chemical Romance, which I'm sure you guys know. And he was just a delightful guy. And he's, you know, his brain is crazy fun and he had wonderful ideas. And he was kind enough to give me the creative freedom to sort of make something that wasn't a photocopy of the of the graphic novel, which would mean it would have been very hard to adapt. It's very nonlinear, mm-hmm. but you know, it was, he said, you know, do something great with it. And I said, thank you. And it's been like a delightful journey with this guy ever since. That's great. Um, yeah. One of our, our questions, actually, it's so funny that, that you, you said it was um, we actually consider this like the Royal Tenenbaums of like superhero shows. Um, Cause at its core, it is really about a dysfunctional family. That's like kind of learning to accept each other and, and work through childhood traumas, I guess, um, simple, uh, in a simple way of saying it. Um, 
which actually makes it really relatable and enjoyable. Um, do you have favorite pairings when writing scenes? I, I do. And I, and I appreciate you kind of, you know, getting to the idea that the, the one thing these kids have in common is a shared trauma, which is they're raised by a crazy dysfunctional alien father who used them as instruments and, and truly didn't love them or, or maybe he loved them in his own way, but that's the shared trauma that, that brings them together. I do love pairing uh, different groups. I mean, Robert Sheehan, who plays Klaus, is is pretty good mm-hmm. with everybody. But I think he's quite delightful when he's with Aiden Gallagher, who plays Five. They're a funny combo. Uh, I also think Ritu, who plays uh, Lila, is great with playing against Aiden. And also her and David Castaneda, who plays Diego, are hilarious together. I mean, just the the weird, odd chemistry of what their love story is about is my my favorite scenes to write. I just think they're just great scenes, great fun. And the two actors will do anything I write. They're just great, easy, easy actors. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the thing that I just did not understand how you could keep pulling off was this idea that it's like the stakes are so high, right? It's the end of the world. And then all of a sudden they have to, in the next season, it'll suddenly be the end of the world again. How is it like trying to reinvent it each time and finding a way to expand the characters? Like, how do you tie all that together? Well, it's hard. And like, you know, I haven't been picked up for season four. I'm hopeful we'll get a season four, which I think would probably be the last season of the show. Mm -hmm. I have a different way to go next year, which isn't really like another doomsday apocalypse, but still has stakes. But it's been difficult because, you know, there is a, you know, there's a bit of a derivative quality that every year, every season, you know, it's got to be stakes of the end of the world. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you're not really watching the show for that. You're watching this group of very wonderfully strange odd outliers that work together and come together and they really are starting to come together as a family you know after three seasons of television so i have a really interesting plan for next year where you we're now getting a little ahead of the comic book which is mm-hmm. interesting i have talked to like Game of Thrones. <laughs> yes and there's I, you know there's the, that worry that you know uh the fans will hate where we go the good news is Gerard and Gabriel have many, many volumes in their heads of what they where they want to bring the graphic novel, which will far out, you know, outlaw outlast us as a TV show, I believe. So I have sort of talked with them about what a season four could be and where they're going. And we have talked about how things will properly align. So I'm not really going completely uh, off of my own. Uh, but it will be weird. Like some of the frames of the graphic novels, I try to repeat cinematically and try to get to them. This will be the first year I have none of that to look at. Is there something about it, like when the stakes are already set up at the beginning of every season so far that that the apocalypse is here? Does that just allow for the the more smaller stories, the intimate stories to be told easier? Because if you already know the apocalypse is there, then it opens up the door for basically anything to be talked about, anything to be brought forward, does it make writing those personal stories actually a little bit easier because of the apocalypse backdrop? Yeah. I think in some ways, when you know that the, you know, the end is nigh and that you, you, you have to stop this thing from occurring. um, You know, the plot becomes very simple on that front. The complicated plots are the interpersonal plots. Those are really Mm -hmm. complicated. And then when you get into time travel, that's when the show really goes upside down. And we have, I mean, I have wonderful writers in the room and we, we fight endlessly about how the time travel things would work. And are we, 
is a, will the logic pay out? And we have all these charts with circles and squares and things that we hopefully, you know, works. But it is a very, it's deceptively simple looking show that is very hard to write because we are servicing 10 characters, uh, you know, in 45 minutes an episode. And then I thought I, I set us up for 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 pain in the first season by saying each episode is one day. So each season has only oh. been 10 days. And I've kept to that conceit. And I wish I didn't. But I will continue to the very end. But it's made it much harder to tell the stories because every episode is the next day. Yeah, it's so funny because, you know, five keeps, keeps mentioning that like he wants to take a vacation because he's, he's like, I've been saving the world for 13 days straight. I never even put it together that you yeah. eat. Oh, God, that's going to make a great rewatch. I'll say yeah. that. They've only um, been together for a month. Yeah. I mean, but they have so much time, growth. But, yeah. But yeah. But this is the thing yeah. I love. And honestly, like the whole th- role of Tenenbaum's thing is that like, uh, even though the the story, like we said, is this, it's set in the apocalypse. So you have to, you know, have this, like uh, this engine to get us there. But at the same time, each character, not only do they grow as humans and, and interpersonally, but they also, they're, we find, they find new ways to use their powers. So is this something that like you kind of had mapped out or is it something that you kind of, in the writers from each season, you have to sit down and say, how are they going to grow? Not only like emotionally, but also with the, you know, their powers and everything. Great question. It was actually the latter. We, we, we knew, we wanted, we set from the beginning that their powers were evolved, would evolve every season. It was sort of an idea that once they got to know themselves more, it was sort of a parallel as they knew themselves more and they understood who they were, their powers would also grow in, you know, as, as both sort of trajectories would go at the same time, you know, Gerard, um, you know, has other places, the, the powers will go, but, you know, we, as a writer's room each year said, let, let, what can we do to sort of, you know, alter their power, change their power a little bit. And we've, we've really started to expand on that. I'll think you'll see a lot more of that the next season if they ever get their powers back. But, um, you know, it's been fun to do that, to sort of think of how is, who is Klaus? We find out Klaus now is immortal, you know, and mm-hmm. well, suddenly he's now very mortal at the end of the season, spoiler alert. But, uh, yeah. you know, that's been a lot of fun to do in the room. You, you mentioned uh, this up, if you guys go into season um, four, that you would be, it would be the first one writing without like um, images from the, the, the novels to, to guide you. Have there been any changes um, to the style and the execution of the show because it's live action and, you know, it's coming from the, the fantasy pages of a graphic novel? Like, I, I do believe uh, Gerard went uh, um, to say that in Christopher was supposed to be like uh, made up of dead flies. Yes. But in this he's he's that cube. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like what are what are the uh what are the uh hurdles you have to jump over and, and try and clear there? Yeah, and uh, he was always a cube. He was just made up of different material. I didn't know how to sort of visually do dead flies to tell you the truth. Um <laughs> I I as Gerard has written the novels with Gabriel, they've become more less and less linear. And the the first thing that's that is uh you know the, my first hurdle is is how much money certain things would cost. I mean, some of the wild things in the graphic novel that we so love and want to do, we simply could never afford to do them. The Eiffel Tower fight. I mean, I could give you a list of 10 things there in the graphic mm-hmm. novel, but the nonlinear nature of it does propose a challenge for me at times where I'm thinking like, I love these this story, but how do I get there? So 
for example, in season two, it was a much bigger story, but I fell in love with the Dallas piece. So the Kennedy Dallas piece became what the whole season was about. If you read the second volume of graphic novel, it was a much bigger thing. Dallas was just a small part of it. I chose to put that as sort of the show. And then we came up with a lot of new things, but we still wanted to stay true to, you know, what was a wonderful part of the graphic novel in season three, obviously we have the hotel oblivion. We did it in a slightly different way. It is not sort of um, a place where all the, the evildoers are kept, but yet we still wanted to pay homage to it. Season three was particularly hard because it was COVID. Mm, and yeah. a lot of my initial plans that leaned a little more into the graphic novel quickly went out the window. We got much more set based. If you notice the show, it's a lot of show inside the sets because Toronto had the strictest rules about going outside. There was months where we couldn't go on location and I was rewriting on the fly frantically to try to figure out what we could shoot. So that affected it. But, you know, there's beautiful frames that come from Gabriel Ba's drawings that I look at. I'm like, how do we make this? Let's do this. Like literally like the thing. And we hide tons of Easter eggs throughout the show. There's tons of Gabriel Ba stuff in there. There's my chemical romance things. There's things on the walls. And, and, you know, inspirations by, uh, you know, Wes Anderson. There's a lot of Kubrick this year, Shining. Mm, yeah. Look at the carpet. You'll see what I'm talking about. <laughs> oh, I saw even the wallpaper when they were yeah, looking back. Like I was like, oh, I wish I could have that in my room. And here's um, the thing that will, will wreck the show forever for you guys. If you look at the pillars in the hotel, this is something mm -hmm. very few people know. We, our production designer, Carrie Meyer, wanted to be sustainable this year. If you look closely, this is all it's covered with thousands of recyclable coffee cups from from Starbucks. You will look at the shape and form and you won't see it. And then when you look close, you realize it's painted. But there are about a thousand Starbucks coffee cup holders as the walls and they're used everywhere. And then once you see, it, you'll never unsee it. But you'll oh, wow. take a look That's again. Awesome. You're like, now I see the coffee cups all over the wall. So That's actually we were, really interesting. Yeah, we were very sustainable this year. We wanted to. <laughs> Dude, I love it. Um one of the things that truly jumped out at me that separated this show from other superhero shows in a crowded market uh, was the soundtrack. Like, you know, I have a pet peeve that when, when people use, you know, just two radio friendly songs, we've heard a thousand times. I, it, it's like, feels really lazy to me. And this, you never do that in this show. Like you'll use deep cuts. Like you had a Joe Tex in season two. Yeah. And I was like, I don't think I've ever seen a superhero show that pulls Joe Tex. So yeah. can you talk a little bit about that? Like, how do you go choosing the the kind of music you use in it? Well, music is a huge part of my life. So I, 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 I listen to music all the time and music sometimes inspires me when I'm writing. And sometimes a song inspires my writing and works both ways. Mm -hmm. So I create a song list before I've even written the scripts of songs I just love. And sometimes nice. I find, I think as I'm listening to the song, I think, you know, this would work well with the scene I'm thinking about it, putting together. But I also encourage my writers, we write the music into the scripts. It's not like we do a show like most shows do. They, have, they go into post and say, let's put a song here. They're written into the scripts ahead of time because I like to put the music in. I like the actors sometimes mm -hmm. to hear the song that's going to be playing over. And then I got a really great mu music supervisor named Jen Malone, who, you know, if if something doesn't work, she'll say, we'll try this. And she's very much outside the box thinker, but, you know, we're very proud of the songs we put in the show over the years. And, you know, we have, we have launched, relaunched a few big, num big songs that had fallen long off the list. Like, I think you're alone now. Uh, <laughs> and suddenly Tiffany's, you know, had a really good Christmas that year. Cause it went, <laughs> you know, no one listening to it to being top of Spotify for about three weeks. 
That was so, a great sequence, by the way. That was, you got that to see was how, how all really the characters fun. interacted. Uh, yeah, we the did. Song. The dollhouse was a tricky thing to shoot and make the VFX work. But, you know, I described in the script as like we took like a, a slice of the house in half and we could see into it sort of like a little rat maze. And then our VFX gurus made that come true. And it was great. Did you have a favorite uh, a, a favorite uh, scene paired with a, a song that from the any of the seasons? I, I love the Swedish cover of Adele. Uh, with the Swedes. And mm-hmm. I'll just tell you a quick story about that. Initially, Adele said no to the use of the song. And the version I found online, I found on YouTube, was this young woman in Sweden who'd recorded it herself. Um, and then once I told Adele a story, not directly, but through her people, said, look, this is a young woman from Sweden. You will make her life or career. She said yes. And what was great is there's a very great little bit of film of her watching herself watching the show she's been filmed when she hears her voice she just bursts out crying with laughter and excitement to hear her voice and knowing it's on show that millions of people are watching i love that mm-hmm. one um i also love the the shoot on the diner you know um the from the very first one uh they might be giants i mean there's so many good there's only so many fun songs over the season that we do uh and sometimes look i don't get the songs i always want there's a lot of artists who just say no. And there's mm-hmm. ones that are so much money. You couldn't believe we're like, are you seriously want $200,000 for 25 seconds of your song? But you know, there's always something there that works for us. We find. Well, I appreciate they use the kinks. Cause I, in my head, I can't believe nobody has done like a rock opera with the kinks. Cause they're yeah, like, their too. songs are stories anyway. Yeah. Um, I'm with you on that one. I, I, I agree with you. No, I was, I was going to say the the Adele um the the Swedish cover of Adele hit me from nowhere cuz I was watching the I was watching them you know doing the basically the viking funeral thing and as it was going out I'm like wait a minute I is it no and then and then like the the Swedish part uh instead of Adele's voice was um this Swedish artist and I instantly burst out laughing and uh my wife's looking at me like it's not that funny. I'm like, no, no, it's it's funny. It's quite funny. <laughs> yeah, because once you also know the words of the song, I mean, it doesn't really shouldn't fit over a, a Viking funeral, no. but yet it somehow does. It does work, it right? Really does. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the cast of this show is just, you know, why I tune in, right? Like, that's why I'm hooked and binging it is because of the interactions between everyone. And third season, I was like really kind of, curious and nervous how are you going to use the uh transition of victor of the or i should say introduction of victor hargreaves yeah um and it just felt so natural and long overdue like a moment of uh representation um especially how they all i love how all the different family members were reacting to it it kind of was like a, a i would say a trainer for people who have not had people in their lives maybe that have gone through this but so w- what kind of input did elliot page have for the writing of these scenes if any well it, it was very actually First of all, the answer is a lot, a lot of okay. in, uh, interaction. I, I've become very close with Elliot over the years, and I'm so happy that I can support his journey that he's going on. But the truth is the scripts were finished before he called me up and said, listen, I'm transitioning. Mm-hmm. Um, I a, did not know what to say because no one had called me up and said that. So I think I just <laughs> sat bl- like blankly saying, what do I congratulate? Do I say muzzle tough? I wasn't sure what mm-hmm. to do. But to, 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 in fairness to Elliot, he said to me, write the transition in, don't write the transition in. It's up to you. I trust mm-hmm. you do what you want. So ultimately I decided to do it, but, to, but I had a lot of help. I went to glad and I had 
a, a wonderful help from the community in GLAD. And then they got me in touch with a trans a writer named Thomas McBee, who worked with me. Because the truth is, I mean, I could have tried to write it, but I didn't know the story. I didn't know what mm-hmm. that journey was. And when Thomas and I worked together to go back and find a way, we had to do it early in the season. We had to make the transition work. And I made the decision. I told the network and Netflix, I wasn't going to hang a lantern on it. It was going to happen. This family was going to be accepting and we're going to tell a positive story about it. And that's what we did. So I, I wanted it to be very elegant in the way we did it at the same time to be honest and real. And I think it's a, it's a lesson that there are families that will be accepting and not judgmental. And you can share your, your feelings with people you love. And I do love how they, you know, they listen. Uh, my name is now Victor in the show and they go, hi, Victor. And then they just start arguing with them again. That Yeah. It, Cause go. it's all about yeah. all this other BS in their yeah. lives. That's and what felt was, so honest about it. Yeah. yeah. And and Elliot had a lot to do with, obviously, Elliot and I were talking through the whole process, but it was really beautiful on set. I mean, when we did that scene, there were a lot of tears behind the camera because it was just honest. And you could see in Victor, you know, his shoulders dropping a little bit, like like the weight of the world was like off his Mm -hmm. back and both the actor and the character. And it was just sort of a wonderful thing to see. Yeah, from from our side of it, from the other side of the screen. It was, it was really, it felt so earnest. Like it, it, it felt really like true. And the way that the, the characters were interacting was, was so interesting, especially because it, it wasn't about like what happened. It was like, okay, I want to make sure you, like I'm doing right for what you want. And once Elliot says, uh, or, or Victor in this case, this is what it is. Everyone's just like, cool, got it. And they just go with it. And it's beautiful. Thank you for saying that. No. And look, at its core, the show is about family and that, you know, families can accept who we are in any case. So being trans is not something to be afraid of. So that's the story we wanted to tell. And I'm very glad that, you know, in in most of the cases, the fans really loved it. We got a little bit of people who didn't appreciate it, but they were in the minority. The vast majority of people thought it was it was a good story to tell and, and was done well. So I'm very proud of that. And I'm proud of, you know, Thomas and Elliot for letting me part of this sort of journey in this world. Um, so it was a great thing to do. I'm happy we did it. Yeah. So going back to kind of the, the trans taking the comics and, and translating them into the, the story, the, the, the show, is there anything that like you just, besides, you know, the, we talked about the Eiffel tower stuff. Is there any moments that you just, either have put off that you can now maybe want to put into the final season or just anything that you kind of wish you could add in and that you're hoping to add in soon? Um, great question. Let me just add one more, one more thing. And the last question, uh, I also talked with Gerard about the, what we're going to do with the character. I wanted his support and he was unconditionally supportive of it. said, absolutely. He may or may not do that transition in the graphic novel. That will be up to him, but oh, he could not have been so supportive of that. There's awesome. so many things I wanted to do. I love, there's a story in volume three that set, set was set in Japan with mm-hmm. um, Luther and five Unfortunately, and we plan to go to Japan this year. Then COVID hit and we had to cancel that. Oh. So there's some pieces there. There are, to give a little bit of a hint where I think we're going for a season, is there are some very big unanswered questions that neither the graphic novel nor the show has answered yet. I think the fourth season would probably be our final season. Just sort of, you know, we'd be lucky to get a fourth season. There's very few shows on Netflix that go that long. 
So we're going to answer some of the major questions that the graphic novel fans and the overall fans have about, you know, how Ben died and a few other key pieces of information. Mm-hmm. So that's going to be a big part of next year. That's good. That's awesome. Cause yeah, it's it, those, there are several questions that, that fans are definitely looking for um, the whole Jennifer and Ben thing being a, a Jennifer incident. Yeah. yeah. The Jennifer incident. No, that's something we're going to, we're going to attack next year. We're going to finally answer that. So that will be a big one for next year. And I know what it is. And uh, we're excited to tell that story. If we get a chance to tell that story. And there's a few other unanswered questions about dad and who he really is. And now that we realize he's, he saved his wife, why, what happened to them and why, why did he do all the things he did? And will our kids get their powers back? And I think it's a good chance to say they will, but will they be the same is the question. Oh yeah. That's a juicy opportunity to, to play with. I mean, the whole powers thing is it, it does feel so unique to me compared to so many other uh, superhero films. And that's actually kind of one of our questions, which is like in such a crowded market, like why do you, how do you think Umbrella Academy separates itself from the pack in that regard? Well, I, I, it, I, I'm glad it does. I think it does separate itself. I think, you know, and I love the other superhero shows. I watch all of them, you know, you know, you have Marvel and you have DC doing their thing. I think the boys is in its own category. I mm-hmm. love how filthy it is. Um, and I think we exist in our own little category, which is, you know, we are the sort of, you know, grand, uh, the, 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 you know, the Royal Tenenbaums of superheroes. And I think that's what we tried to do from the beginning. I think we're very cinematic in how we shoot the show. Uh, we spend money, you know, to really make it feel like you're looking at a film, but also, you know, again, it's just, it's driven by family and character. I, I actually tell people sometimes that the fact that they're superheroes is is secondary to the fact that this mm-hmm. is a family trying to save each other and to come back together. So when you look at the show from that perspective, it really sort of changes how it's written. Um, and, you know, the powers are always fun to do, but finding a way to tell honest and grounded and relatable stories for these characters is the hardest part of writing this show. I never find the plot is the hardest part. It's it's how to do the interpersonal and see their growth. Like Allison had a big growth year that some of the fans hated and felt, felt she went too dark. I defended it by saying, look, she has PTSD by being, you know, a woman who just, a black woman who in the Jim Crow South of 1963 with her throat cut, literally had no voice. And then when she did get her voice back, she couldn't say anything because of the racism. And then she leaves the man she loves to hopefully get back her daughter. And then her daughter's not there in this timeline. This woman has PTSD and she's coming apart. Yes, it's a bit of a darker story for her, but I thought Emmy, Emmy River Lampman did a great job of showing sort of how this woman comes apart at the seams. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I, I like to challenge each year these actors to do different things. They love that challenge, by the way. They don't oh, yeah. want to. So next year, you're going to see a lot of different, you know, you'll see there's a, a bigger Ben story next year, which is going to be fun. And, you know, every year there's, we, some people get darker stories. Some people get lighter stories. Well, you know, you, you bring it up. This, this cast is actually phenomenal. They it, like watching again, watching from the other side, they seem like they work off of each other and they have great chemistry throughout, throughout, which um, seems really rare for the number of, of actors and characters that they're portraying with working with this cast and seeing how well they were. Does that just make, um, the writing process open up more where you're like, Hey, I know I can, like you said, challenge, like, Hey, I can really push them to, to try this or that. Like, is there any 
uh, of the, the cast that you actually feel like, um, you know, you can push maybe a little bit further than the others to, to, um, really bring something home. Well, I, I think I can push all of them. I, you know, we shoot in Toronto as many shows do these days, no one's from Toronto. So we're all, we're all away from our families and the cast has become very close over the years. So some of the love you're seeing on screen is really the fact that they do love each other and they care about each other. And yes, we squabble like a real family offset mm-hmm. and onset, <laughs> but there, it is a real family. And I, you know, we don't raise our voices and we're very kind to each other. And, you know, I, I find like there's all the actors have had growth. Some of the people are less experienced, like Emmy, it was, it was her first TV show. You know, Aiden was a younger 13 when I met him. He's now 18. So, you know, Aiden's had a lot of growth and he's become a very, very professional young actor. Um, he's a guy I can put anything to and he will do it. He comes to set. He knows his lines. He never screws them up. He's like, He's a machine, Aiden Gallagher. Mm-hmm. I don't know how he does it, but you know they all they all love to be challenged. And you know, some years they they come to me and give me ideas of how the character should sort of where they like to go. And sometimes it works, and sometimes I say it doesn't really work with where I want to go. But you know, usually um, I try to change it up for them year after year, and they like that. But you can't fake that chemistry. We just have good chemistry. They're just good together. Uh, you know, and I'm proud of that casting because, you know, sometimes it doesn't always work when you put people together, but they feel like a family together. They really do. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, I know we're kind of going over time a little bit here. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, we usually like to end with, um, you know, some of kind of like a lightning round of different, uh, questions that are mostly opinions. Okay. Um, But, uh, so if you're, if you're ready, we're going to throw a few at you. Okay. Okay, so um, it's a battle royale. Uh, so you have to choose un- Umbrella Academy or The Boys. Who wins that fight? Yeah, who wins the fight? Oh, that's a tough one, guys. Different powers. Uh, I-, I think uh, we would win that fight just some- because uh, I think they're they're too uh, they're too narcissistic. Those guys. I think they would would say themselves over each other, and I think our family would pull together. But power for power, I don't know. They're pretty tough. The boys. Yeah, I would say that the the time travel element is the key in this one. I, so, I would agree yeah, with so. you. We would throw time travel at them. That screw them up. We we keep going back five <laughs> minutes and anticipate their moves. Exactly. So th- this one this one's probably a little easier. But um, starting off in season three, um, both people both squads know nothing about each other. All out brawl. The sparrows or the umbrellas. Uh, the sparrows would kick our asses. Would kick the umbrellas' asses without <laughs> even, without did, even right? any doubt. They they do, but they're holding <laughs> back. I mean, they're the perfected family. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're uh, superheroes who don't know how to be a family. We're a family who never knew how to be superheroes. So they win on the superheroes <laughs> side of it. All right, good nice. answer. This is an interesting one, Norm. Did you write this one? I bet Emily this, wrote this. I one. think this was Bridget. Oh, Bridget. Uh, Backstreet Boys or NSYNC? Ooh, guys! Uh, you're referencing a needle drop. Uh, did yeah, did you have Backstreet Boys? Oh. Season two, they had Backstreets back. Yeah, we. I think it's got to be Backstreet because we love. I mean, it worked so well, and we we laughed. I was with a couple of writers when we we dropped that into the show because we had something else written, and we laughed our asses off, and it worked so <laughs> well with Klaus with the ghost of Ben coming out, and it, it was it was wonderful. It was one of my favorite needle drops. Nice. So, so definitely Backstreet back is is a great nice. One. Okay. Um. So, would you rather go time traveling or multiverse hopping? Aren't they kind of the same? Well, no, they're not the same. They're not no. the same. 
Um, I think I would prefer the uh, time travel route. I think the multiverse gets really complicated. And, um, you know, I guess we're, we're, doing mul- we're doing multiple timelines in the show now, but it's not really multiverse. I go with time travel. Uh, also, do you have a, uh, I guess this is not a, a either or, this is a, if you could have one of the powers of the, uh, of the, of the characters in the show, which one would you choose? Hard one. Uh, that's a tricky question. I think they all have benefits. Um, I sort of like uh, Five's powers to be able to sort of blink and mm-hmm. move through time. I, although he's terribly unsuccessful when he does it, <laughs> I think that would be the the ability I would choose. He's also an assassin, which I like. I, I would have agreed with you before season three, but now season yeah. three with the way Klaus has realized his powers, I got to go with say. that power set. That's good. That, no, I, that, I respect that answer. I do. I respect that answer. Something that, that uh, struck me in season three was um, there's a couple of karaoke moments in, in uh, season <laughs> yeah. three. What is your go-to karaoke song? Forever in Blue Jeans by Neil Diamond. That's Ooh, my uh, the Diamond Jew. That's my boy. Yeah, <laughs> that's the one I can pull off. Nice. Uh, you got to know your vocal range. That's important. Yeah, I, I don't think I hit it, but I, I try when I do it. <laughs> nice. All right. Well, I know my answer for this one, but new Pogo or old Pogo? It's new Pogo for oh, sure. Of course. I love biker Pogo. <laughs> biker Pogo yes, is so cool. Yeah. We had so much fun with biker Pogo. The guys <laughs> at um, Weta in New Zealand just created the greatest biker Pogo for us. That was that was a very cool scene, seeing him and Five interact and the whole. Um, I, I honestly was hoping for a little bit more of a chase scene on the motorcycles, mm-hmm. but I, I thought what happened was was really fun. Can I uh, can I be honest with you? We we ran out of money to do that. There was a great chase sequence, oh, and he's it. very very expensive to do and to make, mm-hmm. and we couldn't afford it. But we, it was written in the script. It was fantastic. And then we just we just couldn't make it. We was there any any which way but loose uh, moments that were cut out? Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, I, I get I get the reference, and yes, there were, and that was part of the chase, but we just couldn't pull it off. Darn it! Okay, darn it! Right. So moving forward, you said you're waiting on word for season four. Um, do you like what's the time frame usually? Does it vary, or um, do you usually have like a oh within a certain amount of time we'll know if we have. Yeah, usually we have a we know ahead of time. This is the first season, given some you know changes in Netflix, and uh, you know four seasons are expensive seasons in Netflix. That everything gets a little bit more money, you know, uh, salaries go up, the things go up. So this is the first year we haven't been in prep while we're we're waiting. To like usually we're in prep while we're waiting for the official pickup. This year we're not in any kind of prep, but. You know, Netflix is usually looking at 28 days of numbers. If you see their new top 10, uh, mm-hmm. you can go to the site and look at 28 days worth of numbers. That's probably part of the deciding factor. So we're 21 days into it now. And I think in a week we'll know. So, oh, I mean, nice. I hope it could be longer than that. But I'm hoping in the next week or two to find out if we're greenlit for another season. It's a great excuse to get my wife to watch so I can do a rewatch. Just pump those numbers up. Everyone yes. out there, pump the numbers up. Keep watching, right? Yeah, and I'm going to tell some of my friends that, like, supposedly, uh, hopefully, that if season four does happen, which now that you teased that we'll be getting some answers uh, to some of the big, bigger questions, I'm going to tell all of my my friends, like, hey, don't forget, if we get season four, we're getting some bigger, uh, the bigger answers, and I will, I will try and push them because I yes. want these answers. I appreciate it, guys. I really do appreciate it. I want to show you the answers. <laughs> 
Great. All right. Well, that's all of our questions. Uh, you know, anything else you want to add before we take off? No, it's just, listen, uh, you know, we, it was a, the cast worked really hard during COVID this year and we really love that the fans have been so supportive in the long wait between seasons. And, you know, we, we aim if we have a season four to sort of, you know, up our game and we won't be in COVID hopefully. And, uh, you know, we want to give everyone a spectacular fourth season, whatever that may be. Nice. Great. Well, thank you so much again for taking the time to speak with us at the verse. And uh, yeah, we're big fans over here and we'll make sure to, uh, you know, be telling everybody to, to juice up those numbers, watch the show, juice it up. Thanks guys. And I'm big fans of yours and I really appreciate the chat. That was our interview with Steve Blackman, writer and producer for the umbrella Academy. We hope you enjoyed his stories about making such a wonderful show. If you want season four as much as us, please rewatch your favorite episodes to show your support. We'll be back soon with more coverage of your favorite movies and TV shows from across the pop culture multiverse. So long, and thanks for listening to The Verse. The Verse is presented by ScreenRadar.com and produced by Stephen Kruzakowski.